The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The study confirmed what everybody already knew was happening, that Blacks in our community um, were being arrested at 2.2 times greater rates than whites. Ever since, we've engaged with top-level officials at the state attorney's office, where we brainstorm reforms. We also developed bench cards for judges that explain the collateral consequences of a conviction. You know, people can be denied not just employment, but housing as a result of a conviction. And so the idea was to educate judges so that they in turn can make informed decisions, sentencing decisions, and also, you know, help to inform the, the person who's taking a plea so that they know what they're about to face. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of The Hearing, where we have conversations with interesting people about legal happenings around the world. This is your host, Lauren Sobel, and today I am talking with Rosanna Ortega Gomez, law firm partner and president of the ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida. Full disclosure, Rosanna and I are hardly strangers. We met as colleagues in 2006 and became fast friends. But the reason I asked Rosanna to be on the podcast was because she has one of the more unique legal careers that I've come across. She has also cracked the code on marrying her passions in the law with her career. Rosanna began her career as a civil litigation attorney, but found herself not being able to ignore a calling to help improve the criminal justice system. And this led her to the public defender's office and eventually to private criminal defense. Rosanna has had some pretty formative experiences in her career, including being a witness in her own cases and having clients tell her to her face that they thought a white male attorney would be better for their case. Though Rosanna has since returned to doing civil litigation, her passion for civil rights and improving the criminal justice system remained, which led her to become heavily involved with the ACLU. We talk about Rosanna's role at the ACLU, the ACLU structure, and the civil rights issues Rosanna volunteers so much of her time on, all while still doing her day job. And a quick note about Rosanna's role for the ACLU. Um, When we recorded the episode, Rosanna was president of the Miami chapter of the ACLU, but she has since been elected to president of the ACLU for the entire state of Florida. And I think that just further underscores her passion for the work that she does for the organization. And with that intro, I now turn you over to my conversation with Rosanna. The Hearing. Since this is a legal podcast, I'm going to start by asking you a question that is um, candidly not my favorite question when people ask me it because I don't have a glamorous or impassioned answer to it, but I do love to hear other people's stories, so I still ask it. Um, And that is, tell us, what made you become a lawyer? So that is a difficult question. Um, I was in college and... I was about to graduate with a liberal arts degree and did not have a plan beyond that. Um, A friend suggested that I apply to law school. He was doing the same and and he said that he thought I might be a good lawyer. And I decided to just give it a try. Now, the reason why I didn't have a plan was because I am the first person in my family to graduate from college. And my focus really was in trying to obtain that first degree 
you know, my bachelor's degree. And, you know, I was working, um, I was working at a law firm at the time in college as a law librarian's assistant, uh, trying to pay for, for college so that I could graduate. And, and even though I worked with all these lawyers, it had never occurred to me that I too could become a lawyer. You know, I, ironic. (laughs) I mean, I grew up in a family where we didn't, we didn't have doctors as friends or family members or lawyers. Um, You know, we didn't have professionals. Um, So I didn't really have a role model. And, and I just, you know, I, I, to me, the achievement was to graduate college. So I quite often, you know, reflect back in that time and, and just, I'm, I'm thankful that I did take that plunge. And when you were in law school, was there a type of law you wanted to go into, or did you envision what kind of lawyer you might want to become once you were in law school? Yeah, once I made the decision to apply, I I thought, you know, I was very interested in public interest law. I thought I wanted to become a public interest lawyer so that I could help people with my own background. You know, I grew up in a family where my mother didn't speak English, um, and I, as a very young you know, as a young child, I was the one calling credit card companies to try to negotiate lowering of interest rates. Um, I learned about a program in my county that provided health insurance or medical um, services to people of low income. And so I navigated that whole process, figuring out what the application required, putting it together, submitting it, going with her to the interview. And having that experience, you know, made me realize that there's so many people um, that don't, you know, don't have the benefit of having, you know, a a young child who is uh, studying in school and can navigate that process and who's going to go to, you know, law school. And I decided that I wanted to give back to my community by doing public interest law. So it's interesting. I think your story is one that is very um, common among first generation um, immigrant families, where particularly as the daughter, you are, um, you are, you know, navigating, uh, you know, in English and, and you know, the quagmire of, um, of uh, administrative things that there are when you first come to this country. So um, I'm sure that was good preparation for law school. That's, that's no easy feat, um, particularly as a young, a young adult. Um, so I do want to talk to you more about your career background, because I think one of the things that makes you pretty unique is that you have switched between being a civil lit- litigator and both a public and private criminal defense attorney. Can you tell us a bit more about your um, career path and how that all uh, happened? Yeah, so I um, I started out as a law clerk for a couple of federal judges. You know, I thought that was very much in line with my goal of becoming a public interest lawyer, serving the community. And and then from that, I you know I realized I had a, I graduated with a ton of student debt in the six figures. And decided I was going to go uh, to a large firm and pay down my debt, and then I would pursue my interests. Um, I also really, in that that process of clerking, I really developed a passion for trial um, experience. I, I saw the lawyers coming into court and arguing, and I just fell in love with it. I thought, that's exactly what I want to be doing for a living. And so um, I went, I started you know, as a law clerk and then working for a large firm in Florida, I started in civil uh, litigation, but quickly, you know, realized that if I wanted to get trial experience, I needed to go to the public defender's office, 
which was right on, you know, along the lines of what I wanted to do of helping the community and, you know, helping lower income uh, people. And so I applied. Um, it was the most difficult interview process you could ever imagine. I had to do a <laughs> opening, a closing, a cross-examination right oh, on wow. the spot. Wow. Um, so it was a really fun, it was a fun and interesting job interview. And, um, and I ended up working there for about three and a half years, uh, doing all sorts of cases from murder cases to, you know, misdemeanors. Um, and then after that, decided that I wanted to see what federal criminal defense was like. And so I moved to a boutique firm. It's uh, the Roy Black's firm. He's a, a criminal defense lawyer here in Florida that is uh, probably nationwide, you know, known nationwide. He's represented people like Justin Bieber and um, William Kennedy Smith, Rush Limbaugh, Helio Castroneves. And so I thought, you know, what better place to go learn federal criminal defense than at that law firm? And I went there and I, I practiced federal criminal defense um, for about five and a half years. Um, and then I decided I wanted to go back to my roots in civil litigation. So you went from public defender after a number of years to private criminal defense attorney working on, on high profile white collar cases. I think a lot of people have the idea that being a lawyer can be somewhat routine or boring, but you've certainly had your fair share of interesting things happen to you while practicing. So can you talk about some of those with us today? Um, well, as a, as a public defender, you, you have a lot of very colorful clients. So <laughs> I always, there was never a boring day. Um, but I would say that the most interesting, certainly the most unexpected thing that happened to me um, that has happened to me as a private criminal defense lawyer was uncovering government misconduct. And so I, I worked on two cases, not just one, but two cases where uh, the defense team, you know, and I was part of the defense team, we ended up filing motions to disqualify the prosecutors um, for what we believed was government uh, misconduct for inappropriate behavior. And in, in both of them, the allegations were just, you know, that the government, the prosecutors had had access to our uh, attorney-client privilege documents and our work product documents. And, and those cases were, you know, it was, it was very interesting to all of a sudden be in a position where, you know, you're defending your client in a criminal case, but now you're also challenging the prosecutor's um, ethics. If you can talk about it, what role um, did you have in in sort of bringing to light this alleged government misconduct? So as an attorney, I'm very hands-on, and I, I like to review the discovery myself. I like to uh, interview witnesses. I feel that, you know, by being very involved and having a lot of client contact and making sure that you're overseeing the team of professionals you've hired, you know, your experts, your investigators. Um, that's how you learn your case. That's how you figure out what your, you know, your defense is going to be. And so I would go um, to either my client's office in one case or the other one was to an FBI uh, facility where I would review um, hundreds of boxes of records. Uh, this was a you know, a, a fraud case involving a medical facility. And so there were tons of, of patient records, 
And I would set aside, you know, the documents in both instances, set aside the documents that I believed were important to the defense and later learned that the prosecutor had had access to those documents. So once I, you know, I learned that and we filed the motion, somebody had to, um, you know, describe it to the court. And so I was in a position where I had to testify in these cases. Um, so that's not something that happens every day, that a lawyer um, becomes a witness in a case that they are defending. And that happened not once, but but twice, if I am understanding that correctly. Um, can you tell us, um, obviously without uh, revealing anything you shouldn't, just what it was like to prepare for and, and to be cross-examined as a lawyer? Um, I think, you know, again, many lawyers will never have that experience. It was nerve-wracking. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> It was absolutely nerve-wracking. And it was so interesting because it was it was an experience I never expected to have as a lawyer. You know, you put your your witnesses on and 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 you don't really you think you know the things they're worried about, but you don't really know what it is that they're worried about until you're in that position. And all of a sudden I found myself, you know, getting ready to take the stand and second guessing what I was gonna say. You know, just wondering, did I did I hear that correctly? Did I see that correctly? Um, you know, maybe that I was wrong about this. And and then you realize that you really, you know, you, you can second guess yourself to death and that you really just need to trust your instincts and trust what you have discovered. Um, and, and that you just have to trust that you are being honest in your testimony. And so that in of itself was very... Um, just was very unique. And then to have your opposing counsel cross-examine you was uh, just, you know, it was bizarre. <laughs> I <laughs> can imagine. But it must make you such an empathetic attorney, right? All of a sudden, you are put in the position of, of many of your clients where you're on the stand and you're being cross-examined. I mean, that's that's an incredible experience that, you know, again, most lawyers just don't have. Um, so, you know, I'm glad you made it through. <laughs> and, and in a way, you know, it's it's amazing that you had that experience because I'm sure it does make you a much, not that you weren't a bad lawyer to begin with, but a much, much better lawyer. It definitely gave me insight into the entire process that I, I lacked, that I hope, that I know informs, you know, decisions that I make um, when I'm when I'm putting witnesses on the stand, um, you know, that also informs how I prepare my witnesses. To be able to say to your client, hey, I've, I've been through this before, so I know what it's like and, and here's what it's like. I'm sure, again, it's like such an invaluable um, experience as a lawyer to have. Now, you're at a point in your career where you are handling these high-profile white-collar cases. You're taking on important issues like you know, potential government misconduct, you're being cross-examined, and you've developed some real experience and chops as a criminal defense lawyer that many lawyers, again, can't claim, but you decide to go back to civil litigation. What what drove that decision? Testifying in two criminal cases. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I missed civil litigation from uh, my original, you know, my the beginning of my career when I was at the large firm. And that experience, you know, with the the cases I just described, really made me 
rethink the the path that my career was taking. And and at the time I was doing private, you know, criminal defense and I remember, you know, I've always wanted to help people. I've always wanted to do public interest law. And and I felt that if I went to go do civil litigation, um I could I could go back to those roots. And did you find that it was harder as um, as a female criminal defense attorney to to get business or for people to to sort of take you seriously because you were a woman in a field that I think um, I would say is male dominated? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there were a lot of decisions in, in going back to civil litigation. I mean, one of the, you know, the, the right opportunity presented itself. I met um, the founding partner of the law firm where I I currently work, Access Law Group, and he was, he's very innovative, and so he was recruiting um, young lawyers who were talented and wanted to expand their practice, but also understood the challenges that we were experiencing. So for me in particular, what spoke to me is that he understood that being a woman was difficult in terms of practicing law and, and getting business, especially in the criminal defense field. Um, you know, many of the people charged are, are men. And, and so it, it becomes challenging convincing, you know, clients who are facing years and years in prison to hire you sometimes as a woman. And, and he also, um, he also presented a great opportunity because he, he's, our law firm is very flexible in the types of cases that we can take. So we take all sorts of cases, including uh, commercial litigation cases on a contingency basis, which is a unique thing for a law firm to do. But what it, what it enables someone like me to do is to help a small business owner who has a good case and normally wouldn't be able to hire a, a good law firm to help with the case to um, set up a, a structure for a fee that enables him to hire us and enables me to help him. And so it really does take me, you know, back to my roots of wanting to help, you know, people in the community who are navigating, like you said, the quagmire of legal issues. I, I want to go back to something you you alluded to, um, and that is um, gender discrimination. If you're comfortable talking about it, were there ever any um you know, overt instances where, where someone said to you, I don't want to hire you because you're a woman. Oh yeah, I've definitely, I've had a couple of instances where my, you know, jaw dropped because, you know, as a woman, I think you expect that at some point it's going to happen. And, and I really, you know, as a, it, I, one thing that I did not expect is how abrupt it was going to be. So, you know, as a young lawyer, um, no, people really don't have a problem usually with you just doing, sitting at your desk, doing the research, writing the motions. It's when you start going into court to argue that eyebrows start raising and for the clients. And so um, it wasn't until I had become a partner and I really, you know, the question of how am I going to develop business became an issue that I realized that this was going to be a problem. I mean, it was a big it, it was a overnight sort of glass ceiling situation. And, and in the process of changing law firms and actively trying to recruit clients, I, I had a client, a former client, somebody who I'd already you know, represented, um, 
flat out tell me that they couldn't hire me for their new case because they needed a white man, an older white man to represent them. And this was somebody who, who knew me from when I was an associate at my you know, past firm and who I'd obtained an excellent result for. Wow. So they, they actually said to you, essentially, we can't hire you because you are a young woman and not an older white man. That's unbelievable in this day and age. Um, and sadly, I don't think it's a unique story, um, but it's um, nonetheless hard to hard to swallow, um, particularly because I, I um, you know, know from your experience that you are an amazing trial attorney. So um, I am sorry that that happened to you, but I am glad you found a way to, you know, turn it around. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. With superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. Even though your practice is primarily private civil litigation now, you are still very involved in criminal justice and, and civil rights issues. And that's because you are very involved with the American Civil Liberties Union, better known as the ACLU here in the US. Um, in fact, you are the president of the Miami chapter of the ACLU. So can you tell us how did how did all of that come about? Well, when I was doing my, uh, you know, working as a private defense attorney, um, I, I wanted to do public interest work. And one of the partners at the law firm recruited me he was already had been involved with the ACLU for many, many years, I think for like 20 years. And so he recruited me to, to join the legal panel of the local chapter of the Greater Miami chapter. And so I started attending the meetings, um, the legal panel meetings. I then started co-chairing the, the legal panel and that I, I learned more about the organization. You know, the, the chapter has a police practices committee where they're very involved in police oversight and they regularly uh, have meetings with police chiefs. And that really appealed to me given my criminal defense background. And so I became more and more involved and, uh, you know, there was an opportunity to run for president and, and I did that. And now I'm on the state board of the ACLU of Florida. So can you talk to us a little bit about the the structure of the ACLU? Because I think, at least in, in my mind, the ACLU is, is one big national organization that works on sort of the same set of civil rights issues. But that, I, I think, is not the case. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, you are correct in, in, in a sense that there is a national organization that employs full-time staff and they deal with uh, civil liberties issues nationwide. But from that national organization, STEM affiliates, and we call them affiliates, and they are uh, located in the different states. So for example, there's the ACLU of Florida, the ACLU of Ohio, and those affiliates are charged with dealing with the civil liberties issues in their state. They are staffed by employees but also have a, a large network of volunteers. And the boards of both the national and the affiliates are uh, volunteers, just members from the community. And, you know, I think a lot of people might think it's, it's just lawyers, but that's not the case at all. Um, we have people from all backgrounds. You know, we've got medical professionals, accountants, graphic designers, marketing people, retired 
uh, people, mothers who just want to get involved in the community because they're concerned with the civil liberties violations that they're witnessing. So that is, you know, that's the strength of the ACLU is not just the coordinated efforts of uh, full-time employees, but also the, you know, the, the volunteer network. That and so to, to clarify, you are a volunteer. Yes. And so you, you do this in addition to your full-time job, which I imagine doesn't leave you a lot of free time <laughs> as no, it president. Is a, <laughs> it is a full-time job. <laughs> yes, I can, I can imagine. So you mentioned the um, police practices and, and police practices committee. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and you know, what it is and, and how it sort of uh, came about? Yeah, so there were, I believe in the 80s, so this is, you know, it's uh, almost pre-exists me. Um, in the, <laughs> I believe in the 80s, there were a bunch of um, uh, police brutality cases that were happening in, in Miami-Dade County in the community. And so a group of uh, people involved with the ACLU became very concerned because they kept hearing, um, they kept getting complaints from citizens about police misconduct. And so they formed a police practices committee. And at the time, the focus of the police practices committee was to get civilian oversight over the police. And so what that means is if you're a citizen and you've been abused in some way, that there be a panel of people that you can complain to who can adjudicate your, you know, they're an independent panel, not other police officers um, who can adjudicate your complaint and then try to address, you know, the the issue. And and so they so the police practices committee started lobbying and led a wide range uh, ranging coalition um, to start the civilian oversight in both the city of Miami and in Miami-Dade County. I want to go back. Um, something you mentioned uh, about the local um, chapters and the affiliates. So it sounds to me like the issues um, that each chapter, you know, tackles or each affiliate tackles has to do a lot with the local geography and what's going on locally. And that was sort of eye-opening to me, again, because I thought of the ACLU as one national, um, you know, organization. It's not. Can you tell us, um, since you are the president of the Miami chapter, what what kinds of issues other than, you know, police practices um, have you come across or, or does the, the local chapter work on for the ACLU? I, well, I mean, in terms of our local chapter, we, you know, the, the police practices um, aspect, the police practices committee does a ton of different things. So, you know... One thing that surprised me when I began um, co-chairing the committee and you know participating is that oftentimes we were partnering up with these police chiefs to try to address issues in the community. Um, so you know we we participate in the process of interviewing and providing feedback to the city manager when they're considering how to hire you know what police chief to hire. Um, we regularly meet with the police chiefs to review their practices and urge reforms. Um, we serve on the City of Miami Police Chiefs Advisory Board. We deploy teams of legal observers to monitor police conduct at events. Um, we attend protests as legal observers. And so that's what we do here locally. But in terms of, you know, the work of the ACLU, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in Miami that happen elsewhere or that happen in Florida that happen elsewhere. I think, you know, one of the the things that I think is raising everybody's interest is uh, book banning. 
So that's something that's been happening across the nation, not just in, in Florida. And the ACLU's, uh, you know, monitoring and, and you can see that they're becoming involved and there's some, there've been incidents in Missouri and Florida and Texas. Um, so lawsuits have been filed and that those are issues that, you know, are overlapping across our country now. It's so alarming um, to think we are in um, a time where, <laughs> where there is still book banning um, going on. So um, I'm glad to hear that that the ACLU is is actively working on it. It's it's um, disturbing on on so many so many levels. Can you tell us about any other um, issues that that um, I, either your chapter or, or local affiliates are working on for the ACLU? Yeah, I mean, we have, we've worked on a lot of um, historical issues that continue today. So for example, in 2018, we partnered with two professors, sociology professors at the University of Miami to conduct a study of racial bias and ethnic disparities in our our county's criminal justice system. And so this resulted in a 52-page report, and the study showed um, you know, there was a, a member of the NAACP who described it very, I thought it was amusing. He said it, it, it confirmed what everybody already knew was happening, which was that blacks in our community um, were being arrested at 2.2 times greater rates than whites. And, and there were similar results with, with respect to pretrial detention and uh, incarceration. And so even though that study was in 2018, ever since we've engaged in a series of communications with top level officials at the state attorney's office, uh, with judges, you know, trying to engage in a, in a discussion where we brainstorm reforms. And, um, you know, we, in addition to, to doing that, we also developed bench cards for judges that explain the collateral consequences of a conviction. So, you know, a judge knows Everybody in the criminal justice system knows that a conviction, a criminal conviction, is going to affect your life permanently. But you often don't understand the details. You know, people can be denied not just employment, but housing, housing opportunities as a result of a conviction. And so the idea was to educate, you know, judges of all the collateral consequences of a conviction so that they in turn can make informed decisions, sentencing decisions, and also, you know, help to inform the, the person who's taking a plea uh, to a to a case, um, you know, the person that's about to be sentenced so that they know what they're about to face. Was that like an actual index card that that judges would put on on, you know, the bench so they would see it as they're doing the sentencing? Yeah, it's literally a bench card. So it's like a, you know, small card that contains all of the different um, consequences. And so you can see like based on what the conviction, the type of conviction, if it's a felony, if it's a misdemeanor, the degree, you know, those kinds of things. And it was like bullet points, like we'll lose housing, we'll not be able to get a job, we'll not be able to do X, Y, Z. Wow. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. So we were able to do that. We've also been, um, you know, another uh, sort of hot topic in Florida recently are uh, school board meetings, you know, sort of along the lines of the book bans. Um, school board meetings have become very important. You know, a lot of the uh debates about, you know, whether uh, we, you know, children in school should be educated on civil rights, on, um, you know, gender orientation issues have been, are sort of being fought out by organizations at these school board meetings. And so school board elections have become, you know, quite important here. And 
you know, we are and people are being uh, trespassed from these public school board meetings. And so that's something else that we've been our chapter has been doing is monitoring these trespass warnings and challenging them. Because um, you can't be permanently trespassed from a public meeting. <laughs> so, but when you say so, can can you explain or elaborate on that a little bit? When you say trespassed, what in in practice, what does that mean? Yeah, so there, what there are people going to these meetings from organizations who you know are either for um, you know banning certain books or are against banning certain books, and and they the police officers at the meetings. Um, you know, it gets disruptive. People start voicing their opinions on issues and the police officers at these meetings are pulling people aside and, and trespass warning them saying, you know, you cannot come back wow. to another school board meeting. And so this is a, a public meeting. It's a violation of civil rights. You have to allow people to attend public meetings. Um, so we've been monitoring these trespass warnings and, you know, at writing letters to to the school board members and the school board attorney. Um, you know, asking them to rescind the trespass warning because it, it chills, you know, the a person who's been trespass warned is going to be concerned about attending another meeting sure. and potentially getting arrested. Sure, sure. Incredible, right? Because I think most people think school board meeting and they think, oh, relatively boring, you know, it, you know, it's parents, it's whatever. But really, particularly these days, it has become you know, another arena for for political divisiveness in a way, um, and and civil rights violations. I mean, that's that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I found it fascinating because you know, the, as you said, it's like school board meetings. You think of you know, th- this is going to be boring, but there are people without children attending these school board meetings to because they they feel very passionately about some of the topics that are being discussed. You know, there are important topics. You know, like banning books. Um, so there, there are a lot of people in the community who now are interested in these meetings. Well, thank you so much, Rosanna, for, for joining us today and, and certainly educating me about um, the ACLU and, and more um, about what it does locally. And, and I am um, thankful to have people like you who volunteer their time um, for their passion, um, you know, of, of human rights and civil rights. Um, while still doing their day job. So thank you. No, thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I really appreciate it. The Hearing. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. If you like what you heard or want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast. You'll be automatically notified when a new episode comes out. And if you like what you heard, please also consider leaving us a review. It helps other like-minded people find our podcast, and we would be very grateful for that. We would also love to hear from you in other ways. We truly welcome your guest and topic ideas. So if you have any suggestions or you just want to say hello, drop us a line at thehearing at tr.com. That's thehearing at tr.com. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.